question. You have mentioned that this is not our real home. Where is our real home? Uh, Seattle, Washington? No. Uh, this is uh, like uh, Ajahn Chah, you, a book published called Our Real Home, translation of one of his talks about a funeral and death. And uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, we referred to wanderers in the samsara. And uh, I don't know about you, but for myself, I've I've always felt I somehow didn't really belong here, and more an intuition than a, than a uh, than anything else. And of course, uh, when you're young, you think very much it's your uh, you know you think you're an oddball or something. You know, you're fear afraid there's maybe you're something wrong with you, and that's why. And then as you get older, you realize everybody, something wrong with everybody. <laughs> and that makes you feel better. <laughs> and so that, uh, so just the, the, the metaphor of home, isn't it, is where you belong, where you're at ease. I just contemplate in this human form on this planet. You know, you, this isn't a place to be at home and at ease, is it? it we try to make homes and and uh, kind of own property and make things comfortable and call it home, but inevitably, you know, it changes. Uh, the body changes, and so that. And we realize that this is just a transition or a like a, a or an ordeal or a journey. We're passing through something. This is how I see it anyway. So our real home is the deathless. And this this experience that we're going through this is just my reflection now. Don't don't you don't have to believe this. But, just a personal reflection uh, that, uh, and then they, this is, uh, this is a chance. We, we, you know, I see that I have to learn something from this. I don't have to learn, but I figure there's something I must learn if I'm, if I, you know, from this experience of a human birth. And so I think, what is it that I have to learn? What can I learn? And and then one thing is that we're we are points of light in the universe. We're 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 you know like vehicles or radios or points where thing that things happen through us and <coughs> and that we can be enlightened. We don't we aren't just kind of creatures uh, that are just run by instinct and habit. I mean, we can be like that. We can just go around following our habits, but we also can awaken to the way things are. And so this is, so our real home is, uh, is the reason why we don't really belong here is that uh, everything is changing. There's no place you can really rest except 
more and more as you relax within yourself and that it's not dependent upon a place or owning property or having a house or being in the country that you call home. It's wherever you, it's where you are, it's in the moment, it's now. So Amravati is our real home or the deathless realm. And that's merely a reflection, not, not a... But I find that helpful because uh, the, this experience is, you know, you wonder uh, about it and you wonder what the purpose of human beings are. Why, why are we this way? Uh, and why do we, you know, why do we so many of human beings do, you know, like fight and endlessly kind of live foolishly and stupidly and and um, slaughter each other. And we've seen just in this this century alone, in like genocides of a horrendous nature taking place, you know, in Europe, in Asia, in Africa. And uh, why why do we do this? Why would we? kill each other and uh, because we if we just follow ignorance and selfishness then that's what happens when we if we don't awaken then we we tell the human being is one of our problems is that we can uh, use our intelligence to completely distort reality create a totally illusory totally unreal uh, fantastic realm of our mind and we can believe in the most ridiculous things but we can also awaken and so this is this is like what you know here you're here isn't it what brings you to a meditation retreat and that and, and trust in the fact that something in you you know whether you're aware of it all that much or no, but there's something, you know, it's an intuitive sense. A sense beyond the sense. A soul beyond the soul of ear and eye that seeks and sings and makes us move only with its wings. And feeds, but in its in return, feed of our hearts where in the old fires that burn. Something like that. <laughs> have the strength not to consume nor glory enough to exalt us past our doom. Now this human state is like we, we, we've got this fire, we're fire beings, isn't it? We've got this temperature, this heat, we burn. We've got this suffering from burning. You know, and you think of, you know, your life is, is a continuous burning. The, the need to eat and, and just this, this irritation of of a human body that's, all, that's, that's a fire body, it has heat in it, so it's always consuming. Uh, and, and this is this irritating experience of human birth and consciousness will never let us rest w with, uh, you know, we never can find a place or a thing or a person or thing that will 
that we can say is really ours or that will protect us or never disappoint us or or make us feel good on a, on a kind of forever, I mean, for eternity. So that when we realize this, we, then we, we, we don't expect or demand that in, in any way. And then we, we uh, say we, we learn to accept this and awaken and watch. So mindfulness is the path to the deathless. So this deathless, uh, there's, a, there's a quote in the Udana, one of the books of the Tripitaka, the Theravada scriptures. And of course, some of you heard me quote this, but it, it's, uh, to me, it's one of the most profound statements I've ever heard. Though in the formula it is, it sounds a bit dry, but when you contemplate it, it, it is, uh, it is, it is uh, you know, something that, that uh, describes, that gives you the, uh, tells you that um, there is the deathless. There is a way out of suffering and death. And so it, it goes something like this. I, I'm not terribly good at quoting, but the, uh, you see, there is the unborn, uncreated, unoriginated. There is a statement in this kind of style of Theravada scriptures. There is the unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, unoriginated. So notice those are all negations of things. Can you imagine something that's unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, unoriginated? Can you imagine anything like that? It's beyond Im- Im- image, imagination, isn't it? Imagination is about the created, the born, the condition, the originated. So, so the statement is there is the uncreated, unborn, unconditioned, unoriginated. And if there were not the unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, unoriginated, there would be no escape from the created, the born, the conditioned, and the originated. But because there is the uncreated, unborn, unconditioned, unoriginated, there is the escape from the conditioned, the created, the born, the conditioned, and the originated. Well, let's uh, contemplate that. It gives you the, you know, like this, this, this realm that we're experiencing right now that we identify with and that that it causes us so much suffering and and and, and discomfort and irritation is the created the born the condition originate like your body like your thoughts your emotions the senses the eyes the ears the nose the tongue uh, all of this is the created the born the condition the originated and that it changes, it begins, it ends. And, and so this, and if, if this is all there is, then, you know, it just, it, it has no purpose to it in itself. It just changes, go, comes and goes, and, and, and there's no, you know, even, even the best of it and, the, and the, the finest bits of it uh, 
you can't sustain, you can't, you can't petrify, you can't uh, make permanent or absolutize. All you can do is just kind of put up with this, with the cr- uh, created, the born, the conditioned, and the originated. But because there is the unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, unoriginated, there is escape from the created, the born, the conditioned, the originated. So the uncreated, unborn, unconditioned, unoriginated, now what is it? You think, well, it's just words, you know, tricky words. But this is where the mindfulness is the, is the door into that, isn't it? You can't find it in, in the, as a something out there. You know, you, where, where is it? You know, you go, in India or in Mecca or who knows? <laughs> it's, not, it's not a place. And, uh, and so then it, is it in, can you find it in your body? Is there some little spark? But what you can know is, is, is just that, that ability to be awake, isn't it? That's my, just a, a attentive, sustained attention is the, is the door to the deathless, is that entrance point. And, and, and therefore, even though you can't find the deathless as a thing, you realize it more and more as you, as you, sustain and, and use that point of awareness more and more for your life as you take refuge in it. Then more and more you, 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 have a, you, you will realize because it's not an object, you can't, it's never objective because you can't see the deathless or smell it or anything. You can't find it in terms of an object. But what can you find as an object? You can't find mindfulness as an object, like you can't be mindful of being mindful, but you can be mindful of the objects, like this morning, the four foundations of mindfulness. You can be mindful of the body, of this body that that you're experiencing right now. You can be mindful of it, be aware of it, it's an object. It's conditioned, you can be mindful of it of the baden, of the feelings, of the sensitive conditions that you're experiencing. You can be mindful of the mood or the state of mind you're in, the quality of mind, it's the state of mind, the mental conditioning at the, in the present. You can, be, you can be aware of that, that's an object. And you can be aware of the Dhamma, the, see it in terms of Dhamma, the arising, ceasing, and the unconditioned, through awareness you realize. So realization, enlightenment, these words are, they're, it's, not an, uh, it's not a finding, but an awakening and a realizing. So it's like you, you've always, you've never lost it, you've never, you know, these stories about the wanderer that's looking for his real home and then finds that he's never left it. So he <laughs> goes all over wandering for a lifetime looking and then find, finds out that it's here and now, it's not, and, it, and it's never left 
but he's 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 been deluded. He's he's believed, uh, uh, you know, in he's seen the the conditioned realm as his as what he is. So what else could it be? Could it be a high level of concentration? Could the deathless be some kind of trance you go into? You know, where you you go and, and you shut everything out. Maybe you have to go into a sensory deprivation tank <laughs> and that where, n- where none of this impingement is taking place. And, and uh, you go into a sensory deprivation tank and you stay there and then, then you maybe get into very refined kind of blissful state. Is that the deathless? That refined bliss? But that is, you know, that couldn't be the death because it's so dependent on, on the absence of, you know, on, on conditions. It's not here and now. It's, it's something that you have to, to do and, and, and arrange and manipulate uh, the, what, where you are and who you're with and what's happening so that, so that nothing is bothering you, nothing is demanding or, or touching you or irritating you. At the, and then, and then through a lack of sensory irritation, and uh, social, and then lack of social demand, or, or that, and then. You know, you 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 when you get over the kind of resistance and restlessness, and that that, that then you, you you go into a blissful. You might experience bliss, or a sense of great tranquility. But then as soon as you go back into the marketplace, go home or something, then, then you're even worse than you were before. Because you, even your, your children, your husband, your wife, is more irritating than they were before. And things that used to not bother you really jar you. You know, you get so refined and you just, you're so precious that, you know, just some, you know, the, the, uh, a, a motorcycle going by just absolutely shatters your day. If you're, if you're living, uh, if you're so sensitive and so refined. That couldn't, that to me is, is not a state that I want to uh, rest in. It's too precious, too, it's not, it is not healthy to be like that. Because, say, this human state is like this, isn't it? It's, we're, we're not refined creatures. We, we, have, we're quite, we have a lot of animal karma, like our bodies. They're like animals' bodies. I mean, you know, we function pretty much the same as animals and on that level. Procreation, same thing. We do the same thing as the dogs. <laughs> and we we defecate, don't we? We all these things. We we're not we're not like you know ethereal creatures of great refinement. But we have to we have to you know we have these coarse animal bodies and. 
and instincts. We have animal instincts. This is, you know, very much the self-preservation, procreation instincts. So, I mean, if we just reject all that and refuse, I mean, inevitably, you can only stay in a sensory deprivation tank for so long, then you have to eat something, <laughs> coarse food, and then you have to defecate. Then none of that is, is terribly refined in terms of experience. <laughs> so then the deathless to me then that would not be the deathless but the the deathless we're able to wouldn't these would not you know these are not obstructions the, the normal functions of the body and the human state and all the rest are not uh, you know they're not these are not obstructions to the deathless they, they might be obstructions to refined concentration, but not to the deathless. So this is why the, the Buddha, after his, uh, you know, when he, the story of Prince Siddhartha leaving the, the palace, going off into these, to these uh, teachers that taught uh, the people to go into very refined states of consciousness. And then, then the Siddhartha was so good, the ascetic Gotama, as it was called, was so, you know, he was better than most people. And so he could easily learn how to do all these, uh, these uh, high, st- high flying meditations uh, and be better than the teachers. And the sutras said that he would practice and then he would learn how to do these even better than his teachers. And so he excelled in, in all the, the jhanas and in the, he developed the Brahmas and the, all the radiances and the whole, the uh, unconditioned, the, uh, the, um, you call it the, not the unconditioned, but the, mine's not working so well. <laughs> but anyway, he, 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 would, he would be able to, to go into these very refined states. And then, but then at the end of it, he's, this couldn't be it. This is not what I'm looking for. There's still suffering in these states. And so then he, he stopped doing that and uh, left his friends. They were all busy going into trances and, 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 going in and seeking refined states of consciousness and went and sat under the Bodhi tree and, and then started reflecting, contemplating, in which he could see things as they really are. So the state of mind that he attained enlightenment wasn't a trance or wasn't a, a high state of concentration, but a very simple state of, a, of a, a sustained attention, of ability to really watch, listen, pay attention. So he said mindfulness is the path to the deathless. So that's why when you Oftentimes when you read, uh, you know, the, the formal approach to religious experience oftentimes makes, makes it almost sound impossible for any of us to ever get enlightened because the, a lot of what religion does as, it, as the, as the re- founder uh, dies and, and, it's, and it's transmitted through, through the people that lived after, then it oftentimes gets exalted, like nirvana. For most Buddhists in, in Buddhist countries is 
it's so high a state now that it's just, you know, it's just way up there, no hope for you and me. <clears throat> and even you hear monks in Sri Lanka and Thailand say, you know, you know, there's no arahants or anything. They're just, they're just, uh, and you can't realize Nibbana nowadays. Maybe, you know, before people were, somehow the, the previous age was people were somehow more spiritual than they are now. The age at the time of the Buddha. And people were in a very highly spiritually evolved place where they could realize Nibbana, but not now. We're too coarse. And these are opinions and views, aren't they? But recognize that, 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 that we can exalt these so that, so that our religious path is so high that there's no, that all we can do is, that, you know, worship it from down here and, and not ever hope that, it, that, you know, ever reach it. Because we, what we've done is we've, we've made it something out of our reach. But that's not the Buddhist teaching. Notice the Buddhist teaching is Four Noble Truths, not ethereal kind of uh, special and precious mental states, but suffering, isn't it? Dukkha. Well, I'm sure, you know, we have the people at the time of the Buddha, when he was enlightened in India, Dukkha was pretty much like it is now. Dukkha is Dukkha. <laughs> you, know, you know, we don't, it's not like a, that the dukkha that people had in India 2,500 years ago was any, anything different than what we have. Loss of the love, grief, it's the same, isn't it? Or having, uh, wanting something we don't have, uh, problems about getting old, sickness, disease, death, having to be with what we don't like. I mean, these are the most ordinary of human experiences that, uh, that are, and have nothing to do with culture or with ancient time or modern time. So notice the, the, te- the noble truths are, are pointing to something so ordinary, so much, uh, the most common human experience that we all have, that everybody has. Dukkha, but then it, then the, then the reflection is on dukkha. You're not trying to concentrate your mind so that you suppress dukkha anymore. But you're understanding, you're going into it, you're examining, you're realizing the causes, letting go of the causes, realizing the, the non-attach, the peace of non-attachment, realizing the way to live as a human entity for the rest of your life in which you do not create any more suffering in your, in your mind. Even though your body still gets old, you still get sick and pa- you can still feel pain, you'll still die, and the body will still die, you'll still lose your loved ones and have to put up with things that you don't like and all that. that's part of life. But the thing that, the t- thing that changes is that you don't your relationship to all this isn't is seen in terms of dhamma and and you're not creating suffering you're not manufacturing a lot of misery around what's happening to you yes but is is there uh, did the buddha or does buddhism not acknowledge a higher power or is that just not part of the whole 
scheme of things. I mean, the Buddha didn't create himself. I mean, he came from his parents, but I mean, other than that, is there not, is there not something, this seems to be a lateral kind of uh, <coughs> philosophy, really, on this sort of level. Is there not, uh, in, in, in Buddha's literature or the canons or, or the sutta, some, some element of something, uh, well, a higher power, I guess, whatever that might be. Well, he, he would never address that issue because, uh, I mean, like a creator god or how it all began, he said, these are something you can't, you can't know. And so, you know, you can speculate only about that. But how it all began, nobody knows. And, uh, and, and, and who created it? But we can't, you know, so that those are, those are the, the philosophers used to come and ask the Buddha, uh, you know, they, they say, who created it? And, and all these quest, kind of metaphysical questions, and, and he just remained silent. And then, they, then they'd say, see, he doesn't know, if he knew, he could tell us, he's obviously not a Buddha. But the silence of the Buddhas now, people, there's a, there's a uh, Catholic um, theologian called Raimondo Panikkar, who's, who's written a book called The Silence of God. It's called The Silence of God. And then, then he talks about the silence of the Buddha. <laughs> and it's interesting in Christian mysticism how, you know, when you're getting into the mystical experience, God is no thing rather than a father who creates. So the experience, you know, I when you get into mystical experience or religious experience, then the, you find that, that that Buddhism is is a kind of very direct, uh, uh, how do you say, description or, or, or convention for realizing the deathless. The deathless or the unconditioned, unborn, uncreated—is—that's uh, th the the miracle of it—is that it is, it is a mystery. How does something come out of nothing? And how does the created, where the created, come out of the uncreated? You know, and and uh, but it does. So so then you know you 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 can see it in your own experience. It, that due to the law of karma and conditions and that have been said, then things, uh, other things arise and cease. And, and you know, not that you're creating anything in any, you know, in any deliberate way, but, but our life does, it, you know, it's set in motion following the, the momentum of causes and effects that, that have been set going long ago. So this is what we watch and learn from, but, but then that which is, is watching, that which is aware of it, you know, is, is we begin to, to abide in that awareness, where then we, we see the pattern. So it, it's not like the, like the thinking mind, where when you, when you use thought, then you're stuck with the idea of creation and then destruction. It's a dualistic, 
thing, you know, where if you've got a creator, destroyer, a beginning or an ending. But when you're talking about unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, unoriginated, deathless, immortality, all you can say is your thinking mind stops. It, do, it can't imagine. It can't create anything, anything un, that, it, that you can say is unconditioned. Im, imagination and the thinking and the ability to create thought and images and ideas stops there. Uh, you know, and you see, because you can, you can create any kind of image in your mind, imagine, fantasize, uh, you know, with, within our range of, of creativity, we can, we can imagine and create all kind of forms and variations, permutations on color and form and design and whatnot. But the, the unborn, uncreated, unoriginated. So that's why this non-plussing of the mind or this stopping the thought process and, and where then the mindfulness in this point of like the intersection of the timeless with time, this, this point of consciousness and awareness that we're experiencing right now, we, we are in a position in the universe to observe the to be in this very place called the intersection of the timeless with time. And so we, we first, we notice the time, the time things, isn't it? We're so identified, so caught up with the, the body, with our feelings and thoughts and, and sensory experiences and so forth. That's so powerful and experience it right now in the moment. But as we stop just reacting and, and, and being caught into it, there's a, that then suddenly there, there's a timelessness. There's a realization of the timeless. Like in the morning meditation, now, the eternal now, yesterday is a memory now. The future, we don't know. Now is the knowing. And so there's, there's more and more we we fix our attention, pay attention now, and then we see this changingness that's going on in terms of it, of, of something that's, that, that's moving through, but not, no longer, are we giving it a, a kind of value and, and, and uh, we're not creating onto it anything, we're not demanding of it or identifying or, or making anything out of it. That it, that it is not. It is what it is, but it's no longer me. It's no longer a self. It's no longer a person. It's no longer mine. Or uh, the way we, in, because we do create, we have language, and we, we do fix things. We absolutize the relative. All the time, we see things like, like this, you're the same person all the time. I go back to my room and I think of, Sister Tanasanti, you know, and I think she's she's this way. And then I come in here and I think Sister Tanasanti, and I see her, and then I then I go up to Thailand and I think Sister Tanasanti's like this. But what is it? Where is it? Sister Tanasanti? It's a perception in the mind. Isn't it? It's not. Is is my perception that memory that perception I have in my mind? Is that 
is that really her? Or is it, you know, I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? It's, it's something in my mind. It's a perception. It's, it has no, I mean, when, you know, it, and yet I can actually operate my whole life, you know, in the terms that, that my perception is, 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 is the real person. So, so I, I think of, you know, I say, where is your mother right now? Well, she's, um, my mother, she's, she's in heaven, she died. <coughs> or my mother, my mother, she's, I'm sure she's in heaven. She's very good. And if she's not in heaven, Nobody's going to go to heaven. <laughs> but does Buddhism allow for a heaven then? Well, let me continue. <laughs> and then, uh, then they say, where, where is your mother? And then say, she's in California, or she's in London, or she's in well, Germany, or whatever. But actually, uh, right now, what is it? Where is she? It's a perception in your mind. When you when you're mindful of it, isn't it? Right now, mother is a perception in the mind, and then you you have a you think my mother is this way, she's like that, she's like that, and you think that 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 perception is is your real mother. But when you examine it, it's it's not anything but a perception. So so that and heaven is a perception. And so is hell, and so is uh, America, so is Germany. And you're walking out here, walk out here and on the field, and and ask the ask this piece of earth here. See, are you England? <laughs> it doesn't say it's anything, does it? It doesn't. Earth doesn't hear, and it's going to say, "I'm England." What are we doing? We say, "This is England." We're we're projecting this word England onto it. So, I mean, it's, this is all made up in our minds, you see. And then we, then we say, we're, this is England, that's Scotland, up there. But when you go to Scotland, what they call Scotland, it doesn't say it's Scotland, we say it's Scotland. And so when you contemplate how we, we fight over all these perceptions, you know, yeah, this is... Serbia, this is for Serbs and this is for Croats, or Hutus and Tutsis, and all like this, you end up kind of most horrible uh, uh, kind of demonic actions over nothing, total delusions. So that's why in mindfulness wisdom is you're investigating the way it is, so that it's... Uh, it's uh, it's nothing. It's not a. You know, you see what why the Buddha said the the world is a delusion. In regards to heaven and hell, in Buddhist terms, there is heaven and hell. And so happiness is heaven, hell is misery. And the Zen Zen one of these Zen stories puts it very well, where the, some samurai goes to the Zen master and. Is there heaven and hell? And and the and the Zen master says something to him that that uh, makes him feel very happy. And 
and he says, that's heaven. No, no, then my first says something that really insults the samurai, so he gets very angry and is going to kill the Zen master and he, and the Zen master says, that's hell. <laughs> and then, uh, and then something else happens where the man see, it feels happy, he says, that's heaven. So in, in experience, just like uh, tasting sugar is heaven or, and you know, when you think happiness, sweetness, pleasure, or the, on, the, on the sense level, or, or even on a, in an ideal, the ideals of, of beauty and all that, that that's a heavenly realm. Or the hell realm is, a, is, a, is what anger, hatred, uh, mal- malice and all that. When, so when we, we experience heaven and hell all the time, don't we? I mean, when you're, when you're full of malice and resentment and anger, that's hell. That's what hell is like. Or that is hell. So whether there's a heaven or hell in the, as a place, I mean, it's just like, is there really a Scotland or, a, or an America? Or are these just perceptions in the mind? And, and we don't know. But, but this is what we can know. You know, there can be, I mean, I can imagine possible realms out there, of, you know, because uh, is the, the human mind can't conceive, you know, the totality of it all. It's just too, you know, you go on to this, this universal system, and then there's another universal system beyond this one. Another universe, this one is... is boggles the mind, and you think, another one, and then there's another one beyond that, and beyond that, and, and you, you know, you give up, because uh, you just, it's just, <laughs> it's too, too much for the human mind. So, you, instead of, of looking at it in that, per, in that way, uh, we're looking at it in terms of, of a microcosm, or, or what we can observe very directly, and but the, the but the the liberation is through the deathless, not through being able to see all these universal systems, uh, you know, in, and and figure them all out uh, in their in, through infinity, but in realizing the deathless in the present. So it's a very simple. It's 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 it is the most simple. But it, it is because of that, then we, we tend to not value it or not see it because we're always looking for something else. We're, we're like we're looking out there, looking for something that, like, like modern science, so much of it is spent in looking way out into outer space or trying to look into microscopes or telescopes or see things, you know, through instruments that you have to invent and that are, you know, give you a, you make, make sure you see far away or, or see in through something that the human, ordinary human eye can't see yet through a, through a microscope. But notice that the, the Buddhist teaching is, is not about, you don't need a microscope or a telescope to do it. You don't have to go and buy expensive equipment to get enlightened. You've got it all here, <laughs> isn't it? You don't have to go, there's not a, we're not trying to have a little shop 
go and buy enlightenment gear. <laughs> Discounts. <laughs> because the, the teaching is not based on, on this awareness, which isn't, which is around the ordinariness of life. Even if you're blind, uh, and, uh, or, you know, that's no problem either, you know, to enlightenment. Or, or the, uh, you know, or deformed, or your, or your, you know, the disease and things like this. These aren't. These are. These. You don't have to be a, a perfect physical specimen to get enlightened. But, uh, I mean, if you are, you can get enlightened too. But it's not not a necessity. So that that this is. Uh, so that this mindfulness recognizes is something that 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 is uh, with us, that is free. Uh, it's uh, it's now, and it's something with that that you can use all the time, but you have to remember it because you forget. We forget very quickly, but we can also remember. So, meditation is sometimes described as remembering the deathless, remembering the practice, or rem or recollecting, bringing back. Mindfulness is like remembering, bringing back, pay attention now. So we use language like we get carried away, we go home and we get all caught up with the worldly cares. You have to stop, pay attention, be mindful. And in that there's a, a re we're reminding ourselves. You know, and listen to the sound of silence, compose yourself, listen to the silence for a while, just stop, calm down, you know. Watch and listen as you, you go home and, and then your family says, you've got to do this, and this, uh, this, this person's upset, and that person's getting a divorce. And, <laughs> and your mind goes, <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you get all excited, and, and all you say, oh, I've spent the last 10 days in Amara Vajji, and it's all gone now. <laughs> and stop. And just trust more. I mean, the world will always, it always has this kind of hysteria to it. And uh, I mean, in the monastery, people come and say, "Oh, just tomato!" <laughs> oh God, what is it this time? Oh, just tomato! What are the nuns? <laughs> uh, oh no, what have they done now? <laughs> and just the tone of voice, isn't it? You know, oh, tomato! And you can feel your whole. Your whole body going into this, <laughs> into this tension. <laughs> so you can really, people can really get you going with it. With, uh, and, and, and then it's something, you know, this is really important. And uh, you've got to make a decision. Or you can't let them get away with this. Or, and so, I mean, the world does that. That's the, that's the flavor of the world. It's got this, you know, it's, it's full of this kind of, of it's it, pushiness and 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 it creates these tensions. So that's why we 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 study the world. We know the world is the world. So that that we can, when that happens to us, more and more we, when we understand the world is the world, then we're not 
We're not deluded by it. We're not caught. We're not victims of people's ignorance anymore. But until that time, then we're, we're always, you know, we're always getting kind of used or intimidated or taken over by all the anger and resentment and endless problems and confusion of our society and our families and friends. So that then, then the, the the path to the deathless mindfulness. More and more, if you keep remembering that, then and they say, stop, stop, just getting pulled into this, you know, reacting, just being caught in your in some kind of reaction to to some urgent thing or some strong impingement, because you can do it, isn't it? You can actually. You know, you you can do it. You're not. You're not. You're beginning to see that you can do it, and understand that this is something to develop and to trust in. Because you know, we we have to put up with things for the rest of our lives. You know, the Buddha after his enlightenment, he lived forty or forty more years after enlightenment, and he had to put up with all kinds of horrible things. And you read in the scriptures. Tried to kill him. Drunken elephant chased after him. Uh, uh, you know, a, mur- a, a serial murderer tried to murder him. Uh, he was uh, a woman tried to accuse him of impregnating her. And and then he had all these recalcit- recalcitrant and difficult monks and nuns. Uh, that did the most outrageous acts, and he had to make this uh, this benign discipline that we all keep now. <laughs> and none of the monks and nuns here in England have ever have been as bad as you read in those in the scriptures. <laughs> Yet, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you read in the scriptures the things that the, the, some of the rules we have. You wouldn't believe. I couldn't repeat them in mixed company. <laughs> They thought of everything. <laughs> so, and, and this is the Buddha had to establish all this. I mean, he had to put up with you know, these, these really, uh, you know, difficult people till he died. But uh, so, I mean, that shows that even the Buddha, you know, isn't getting out, isn't getting an easy ride after enlightenment. And these are much more many more problems than I've had uh, in my monastic life. But the difference was that he he responded to, with compassion and understood it and and was able to to uh, respond in the right way to all these different experiences. So, so sometimes, you know, there's one side of us that wants to get enlightened, to get away, to get out of it, you know, Remember, you know, in the early years, thinking, I want to get enlightened because I don't want to suffer anymore. I want to get enlightened where I can just, you know, live the rest of my life in a state of bliss and not feel hurt or threatened or have to deal with difficult situations or have responsibilities or, or you know, have all kinds of things aimed at me and difficult uh, problems to solve. But that's not what happens. 
I mean, life is like this. It's full of endless trials and tribulations. That, uh, and, but with mindfulness, there's, you change your attitude towards it. So that's why you see, you're looking at, the, at it the way it is, rather than thinking the way it is I don't like and I want to go, I want to be in some place that is not like this anymore, where it's all just bliss. Because this, that is not what, what happens to us. And that's not where liberation is. Liberation is always now. So it's, and, and it's not dependent on whether you have responsibilities or difficult situations to, to cope with. It's on how you, you use those situations. How you respond to them. And how you develop and trust in, in mindfulness rather than then follow resentment or aversion or pride or conceit in regards to the experiences that you have to have till your body dies. Although, like the in the Buddhist uh, jargon, you know, we have the the Brahma Viharas, which are the Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka, or loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Now, those are now like the divine abodes or the Brahma Viharas. They're like they're 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 from the pure. They're they're not from the ego or the personality, uh, but they they're they're like natural responses to to experience from the pure pure mind. So you know, like when you really let go of things, and, and like with metta is a is a, you know loving kindness. So that that is much more. Uh, where we're we're developing this sense of how to res- how to see things in the right way, not to not to create aversion, not to see things through anger and hatred or greed, but with a kindness and acceptance of everything. And that that we, that's a beginning. And then more and more, as the mind, as we let go and experience the emptiness and and non-self, then then compassion, karuna, is very much an experience. We, we're, we, we can, we are willing to, you know, the suffering of all other beings is, we, are, we know it. We, you know, it's not like a kind of feeling sorry for something, but it's much more on the empathetic level of feeling the suffering. We know the suffering of of this realm through our own experience of it. It's not like perceiving somebody, some other creature. But so it's a, it, but it's coming from the not from the self or, or the ego, but from the the pure the ground the pure nature of things. So it's a it's a response to suffering, or when you see 
other creatures, other beings in various states of suffering and misery. It's the real empathy with them and and love of them that comes not from from distorted perception, but through a natural response to a situation. Then mudita is the same toward the beautiful and the good. You feel delight or or joy in the beauty of others and the goodness. Like in the in the world we live in, you know, with we we oftentimes feel, like feel jealous or feel like we we envy people like wealthy people or beautiful people or people that that are considered better or that we tend to not delight in their beauty but feel intimidated by it or jealous of it. But as from the pure mind, then how do we relate to the beautiful and the good in life and then? When there's no self, then there's the, then there's this joyfulness, because beauty is beauty. It's no no longer you're beautiful and I'm not, or you're more beautiful than I am, or I'm more beautiful than you are. It's, it's, it doesn't make any sense anymore, because beauty doesn't belong to anybody. So then it's a response to the to the the, the success, the goodness, the beauty, the truth, the the, the beauty of the planet. We respond, you know, we're open to the beauty of nature, not not to own it or to, <coughs> you know, to possess it, but just as a natural response of delight and appreciation for, for beauty that's around us. So it's quite, it's, uh, it's pure. And then upeka is uh, equanimity, where the, the uh, you know, the, there's, we we rest is our rest because much of our life isn't you know is is in that state of just balance of, of pure serenity rather than in 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 joy or in compassion. Well, they they happen quite naturally, but I mean, but we do have the teaching, we do have the the, the perceptions of the, the concepts. So so that's why you know, it, and so that the Brahma Viharas are something that that we think about and that inspire us. They you know they're inspiring teachings in themselves, but then how do they really work? You know, and you can't make yourself from you know from a willful act of the ego to to have them, but by relinquish freeing your mind from its from its obstructions, they they seem to be quite a natural experience. So trust in that. You know, the more le- when the self is gone, then then your relationship to the to the conditioned realm changes towards compassion towards joy rather than towards greed, hatred and delusion. But in the uh, in the last class 
Yeah, I think it's quite skillful to do that because it gladdens the mind. It uplifts, and uh, and, it, and it it can be superficial, you know, and kind of sentimental, but it, uh, but it uh, you know, but it also can be quite skillful. And and it we need to because so much there is so much negativity in the West. You know, such a kind of cynicism and uh, critical way of looking at everything that, like the metta practice, is a re- is an antidote to that. Because, like with so many, many of us, we we do tend to. Uh, it's easy for us to be see things through a critical eye. And it's interesting. I met a, a man a few years ago who'd been a Buddhist monk for many years. <coughs> And had done all kinds of meditations, and was even a meditation teacher as a monk. And then he disrobed. And so I asked him why he disrobed, and he said, "Well, it was just suffering, suffering, suffering." And I got depressed. And I said, "Well, you know, you 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 practiced so hard, and you you know you were considered a really good monk, and you went through so many retreats, and went through months and months of intensive practice, and." And we're with really good teachers. How could you get depressed? He said, "Well, you know, they they say everything's suffering." And so I just saw suffering everywhere, and I got depressed. And after so many years of of suffering, I just decided I I don't want to do this anymore. So he disrobed and went to live in Hollywood in order to become a <laughs> film director or something. <laughs> Something like that, kind of. But, but then I, I, I said, but, but didn't they teach you that? I mean, it's not like, it's not like a categorical, or a statement of, that you that you operate from. Everything is suffering. I mean, if you're going to, you're not asked to go around projecting this on everything. You know, this is all suffering. You know. Beautiful flowers are suffering. Beautiful women, they're all suffering. Everything's suffering. Good food is suffering. Uh, Amravati is suffering. <laughs> Buddhism is suffering. <laughs> so you're, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're, you're, you're projecting suffering onto everything. That's not mindfulness. So that isn't what the Buddha meant to go around and just saying that's suffering, that's suffering. But in, but into you know there is suffering. So then, that if you if you project suffering and 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 get obsessed with suffering, then you get depressed. It's depressing. That's what depression is. Where you get fixated on misery. So, when I mean, that's not mindful, or there's no wisdom in that, and that's not. So in, so the suffering is is 
is the is the key, isn't it? Because it's an experience we all have, then you understand it, and then you let it go, let the causes go, and somehow you never got that message, which I can't figure out. I mean, he certainly, you know, he's a bright enough person, but uh, but he he got depressed, and 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 one thing was I. I think you know he didn't he didn't gladden the mind he didn't he didn't brighten his he tended to maybe come from an intense desire to realize the for the the truth so he he operated from this from the idea that everything's suffering and uh, where in in the in the scriptures you're also encouraged to do these these like samatha the jhanas, the samatha, or the brahma-viharas, ways of gladdening, brightening, uh, making your heart happy and light. Uh, not to attach to that and get, you know, it attached to that state, but it, it we, you know, the devotion, the kind of, we, the, the love, the devotion, the gratitude, all these kind of virtues lighten your heart. Like in in uh, my experience, was gratitude to the teacher, to the Buddha, just made my whole relationship to practice different. Where before, you know, I was, I was, I'm going to get enlightened. There's so much of me trying to do something, and 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 then kind of you know thinking these don't bother me. I'm busy practicing, and and uh, and then teachers, you know, Ajahn Chah, it wasn't particularly grateful. Just a kind of getting everything I could from him and then to practice and uh, and and going on like that and then then they of course there wasn't much joy in in those first few years because of there's there was a, such a, a self-centered kind of willfulness that that doesn't allow joy uh, uh, into your mind into your experience and then more and more the devotional side came when I started contemplating and Realizing, you know, what had been given to me, what, you know, what was, what was offered, what was being offered to me, and all the support and all the, the good things that were happening to me, and then suddenly the, the heart opened up, and then then I found a lot of joy in the life of a monk and in uh, practicing meditation, because it wasn't coming from me doing something because that that's joyless me pushing through suffering is it's onerous it's, it's uh, too painful to bear so you have to disrobe and become a movie director that'd be more fun than sitting around saying everything's suffering I'd rather be a movie director than than spend my life just uh, projecting dukkha onto onto everything that I'm experiencing. Might as well have a bit of fun. (laughs) Make a few good films or something. May I ask, um, back to the metta practice, I'm just curious, uh, does the forest tradition, Thai forest tradition, not uh, teach um, so much the the metta practice? Well, in, in uh, Thailand, I don't. 
I don't think it's so uh, necessary because uh, you've got a lot of devotion there already. You know, the, the, in Asia, in Burma, you've got all these, you've got a tremendous level of devotion and faith. And, uh, and so that the people aren't, aren't so negative. Uh, we use it in the forest tradition. We do it every day, but it would be more like a f- kind of formula, and you chant it. And mm-hmm. Robert Pandita Saladar, he teaches it as a practice. He taught it to um, Sharon Salzberg while she was there, yeah. you know, for months and months and months. That it's the formal with doing the forest. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I never. We didn't. We didn't really. Uh, I never did that. Uh, I was never taught that, but we did a we did a meta meditation every day. But it it could be quite perfunctory. Uh, but then I did develop it, and also I found uh, like when I came to live in England, I had an insight very immediately that this meta practice was very important here because the the society is so negative, and uh, and you could feel it. You know, you could feel. Uh, the the very critical negative quality of the society, uh, and especially having lived in Thailand, where where the, where there's more uh, where it's not so negative, where people are more positive, in the, in or the society in general is more positive, and 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 where you've got a lot of faith and and devotion already established in in Buddhism. And then here, where people are coming more from a critical mind and uh, uh, and through the intellect, it the, the metta seemed to be a very important practice because it is it is non-critical, you know, it's accepting everything, and and that's a that's a very important. Uh, the mental development because because we're so maybe we're too too conditioned to to be critical and and uh, and pick and choose and and uh, make judgments value judgments and so then we you know because of that so highly developed in say modern education we're, we're very much program for that way of and that's why they people do get so depressed and, and that because the, the mind is programmed conditioned to be very critical and so this when this metta is is non-critical the, the devils the angels the the slugs the green fly the bugs the, the whole lot the serial killers the rapists, the whole everything. Everything is may may all beings be free from suffering, and and, and this is and this is this this way this this way of and in and towards yourself this metta you know being able to just accept everything without that tinge without putting on to it some kind of I don't like this I don't like that or I shouldn't. That's very important because it's it's in that that metta that metta is like a helps you to to accept what you before you couldn't accept and then you can let it go then then you can let go of what because if if 
if you don't accept things, then you can't let go of them. And you're always, because resisting is still in a, t- a form of attachment. To trying to destroy, deny, resist, defend is still karmic attachment. So it's only in accepting, embracing the totality that we can let it, let it el- let the totality go. And then we experience emptiness. So you know, then you, you, the real ultimate realization is is empty is through emptiness rather than through the totality. But that's that's only for reflection. But I contemplate, you know, and nibbana is the realization of non-attachment rather than love of everything. And it's a, a different emphasis, but lo- love of everything, of all creation, is is metta, and the experience of the totality. And then, transcending the totality is the is the realization of nibbana, or the relinquishing, not even grasping the totality. Which, which is an experience, a mental experience, is, uh, is like emptiness, silence. But it's not a dead silence, it's not a, a vacuum of nothing, um, but it's like, a, it's, it's, you know, it's ineffable, it's a realization, it's a miracle. But in terms of thought, then emptiness sounds like, like a vacuum like a nothing and, and there's never, you know, there's just a, a sterile void of nothingness, which is depressing. <coughs> but um, in terms of experience, non-attachment is, is peaceful, is serene. And then, then in this realm that we live in, then things appear and disappear and our relationship to them is, is then with loving kindness rather than with desire or aversion to the to the things that appear and disappear whether and, and on the level of our own human experience what disap- what appears and disappears in your in your consciousness thoughts feelings things you know your your when your karma ripens uh, then you'll have various emotional feelings come up or various thoughts and you have various experiences and so through sight and sound and smell and taste touch and thought and so forth but they arise they cease and then the cessation is peace so when we chanted that anicca vada sankara all conditions are impermanent they arise and they pass away and in their passing is peace ubhasamo sukho so this 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 chant that we have at a funeral, this reflection on impermanence, is pointing to that when 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 you let things go and they cease, the the realization is peaceful, serene. It's not it's not uh, dead in the sense of a of a void of of a blank, but in a more like a a sense of Completeness, perfection. 
So. I'm getting tired.